0: So today I'm excited to welcome Dr. Tomas Chamarro-Pramzic, who is an international authority in psychological profiling, consumer analytics, and talent management. He is professor of business psychology at University College London and a visiting professor at Columbia University. He's also previously taught at NYU and the London School of Economics. He's received a lot of awards from the American Psychological Association, et cetera, et cetera. I won't go into the long list, and he's also the director of UCL's Industrial, Organizational, and Business Psychology Program and an associate to Harvard's Entrepreneurial Finance Lab. So he's got a lot of big names there, but he also has worked a lot for business over the past 15 years and consulted to a range of clients in financial services, some names you'll all know, advertising and consumer goods like Unilever, and obviously the government like the British Army. And kind of ranging across sectors, obviously in a few continents there. He's Argentinian by birth, a Londoner by choice, and has lived in New York for a while now. So he gets around. He is a media pro. I've seen several of his TED Talks. He appears on the news all the time. He's a major keynote speaker, and I highly recommend just Google him and find his TED Talks, but I'll put a couple of links in the show notes as well. So today we're going to talk a lot about his work with leaders and also what he thinks about how this year is going to shape the future of the world of work. What we think of is how we do things. I love your knack, Tomas, for headlines that make me uncomfortable. In fact, one that caught my eye in your Forbes column is The Theresa May Effect, When a Female Leader Deemed Inept is Replaced by a Far More Incompetent Man. So your latest book is called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and What to Do About It. So this is going to be fun. Welcome,
1: Thank you for having me and you know what a wonderful introduction.
0: Recently we were both interviewed by our our uh, publisher in common Emerald Publishing, a great, great little independent publisher in the UK um, and that sort of got us talking and thinking because we were both interviewed about the future of work. It's so nice to talk to somebody not in my field because That's we right. have similar conclusions with different perspectives so This is going to be fun, I think. What is an uncomfortable moment that has shaped who you are, that has changed your life? Like you look back and you see who you are and where you've come from. And you think, ah, there there may be one or two moments that come to mind.
1: You know, sort of like uh, uncomfortable with a big you, it's it's very easy for me to pick one um, because it would be leaving Argentina, you know, leaving my country of birth, And, you know, I recall that it was a process, a long and difficult process that lasted for a year and a half or two years, but throughout each and one of those days of this year and a half or two year period, I was relentlessly determined to leave and try something new. You know, so it's interesting because at the time it didn't feel like I was throwing myself into the abyss And I I knew what I wanted to leave, not what I wanted to get. And it was definitely more of a kind of push than a pull for me, you know? But then arriving to the UK and London when I arrived, you know, that every every moment of the next couple of years was so difficult, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I barely spoke English. Uh, I had a place at a university. I don't know how or why, because (laughs) I was totally out of depth with my studies, it was very, very hard. I had to keep up with my studies and make sure that they don't kick me out or think, you know, who on earth accepted this guy at the program? <laughs> so, you know, that was definitely, I say it was probably the best decision career wise for sure I made in my life because I would be none of the things I achieved or I have would have happened if I hadn't taken that decision. And then I also often think, Betsy, that I, at the, with the small u, I try to make uncomfortable decisions or Acts every day. Once a day, I try to send an email to someone that makes me uncomfortable because Mm. of the prospect they might ignore it, reject it, and you know. And that's how you stretch yourself and how you achieve things. You go to sleep and you have butterflies thinking about what might happen because you had an idea or you want to partner with someone or you, you know, you have a proposal. And the next day, when you when you see that it it's a yes, it's so exciting. So you have to kind of create these. um, stretch opportunities and do things that fundamentally make you a little bit uncomfortable.
0: Oh, I love that. That try to do something uncomfortable every day. That inspires me because I have to admit, I, I, if you listen to the intro episode of this podcast, this is my discomfort practice. And I'm getting to that stage where, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to start interviewing people that I don't know who might say no. Thanks. You've just inspired me. Where did that discomfort get you? I mean, where are you now? That you look back and you think, "Wow, those uncomfortable choices, those conscious decisions to be uncomfortable. Where has that brought you? Who are you now as a result?"
1: I think you know it. It 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 gives you more breadth or depth, or you know, it makes you a kind of a slightly more complete version of yourself. So much of the, I guess, well-intended self-help or Career tips or advice that we read out there actually uh, fosters or nurtures the reverse. It's like play to your strengths, you know, build on your potential and um, do what feels good, follow your passion, you know, and all of those things. And I think that's probably the easiest way to optimize success in the short term, but it also makes life boring, predictable, and it makes you a more narrow-minded person. Hobbies for me have always been very important. If you don't make time to read something outside your main area of interest or learn something new or, you know, do some, I think, you know, you're missing out on a big opportunity and life's too short. I always enjoy, maybe this is the psychologist in me, interacting and meeting uh, people that fundamentally disagree with me because I'm very, very interested in understanding their point of view. I mean, I like my own opinions and ideas, but I don't for a minute think or assume that other people will share them or that I am right. And right now, you know, the politics are so interesting. You have in the US where I'm currently sitting, you have people who describe themselves as liberal and open-minded who are totally ignoring 73 million voters or pretending they either don't exist or they're stupid. But if you don't try to understand why, you know, this guy has been and is up to date the most voted presidential candidate in the history of the U.S., if you don't try to understand Mm -hmm. that, I think you're missing an interesting opportunity to learn something that might make you uncomfortable as well. It's very important that you challenge yourself and that you become more complete by understanding what other people think of the same issues.
0: Mm, that just feels so relevant to right now in particular, sort of that public service announcement that there is value to be had in seeking out uncomfortable conversations with people who don't think like you. How do you bring that to leaders? Because I know sort of in in chatting ahead of recording mm-hmm. today, yep. you mentioned something about, you know, discomfort pushes leaders to have uncomfortable conversations, and a lot of them would rather just avoid that. So What is the value of discomfort for leaders? And if they skip the discomfort, what is the danger?
1: So, you know, in a way, I think leaders, and I include kind of managers in this category, they're almost your ideal target customer or audience when you're trying to help people go outside their comfort zone and have uncomfortable discussions, conversations, experiences. Because, of course, most managers are quite busy. Many, if not most, get put in a position of management despite their abilities or intentions because they were quite happy performing their task as an individual contributor and then they get promoted. You know, the famous Peter principle is that eventually mm. we all get promoted to our own level of incompetence, which is brutal but somewhat true. Mm. The economist in the work psychology column that they started a year ago, so called Bartleby has the bartleby principle which is that everyone gets promoted to their own level of misery so eventually <laughs> eventually wow. we all have to leave the jobs we like cuz we were really good and then they promote us into positions or jobs we don't enjoy so you know you get you get you have to feel sorry for managers because they get put in a position without training often without the skills often without the motivation and then they're very busy with their jobs so the last thing they want is a to hire people who are going to be a pain to manage and they're going to disagree with them and they're going to spend a lot of time having to explain things or persuade. I mean, that's just very inconvenient, right? The last yeah. thing they want to do is also create conflict. And fundamentally, it's a lot uh, easier for them to not create the conditions, what today we would call psychological safety, you know, mm-hmm. for people to speak up and actually tell you that, um, you know, that you're not doing a very good job. I mean, the number one challenge for managers is to go to their teams, their direct employees individually. It doesn't have to be in a group context and say, how could I make your job better? How could I make your work better? Or what is the one thing about me that you would change? Most people also don't want... Cultures of radical candor, radical transparency—you know—cultures like Amazon, Bridgewater, where we all criticize each other. I mean, they're brutal environments. Yeah. It works for some people, but mostly we prefer to be in nice places where we avoid uncomfortable conversations. So, to sum up, the number one skill that managers need to have and and don't is how to give negative or critical feedback to their employees to make them better. And they don't know managing through Zoom and virtual environments has made it somewhat easier because it doesn't have to be face to face, but it's Uh, very difficult.
0: Ah, that's an interesting point about remote working is people who wouldn't be able to have those conversations find it easier. What you're saying is it's almost easier to have that sort of hierarchical, but sort of nice culture where, you know, you're not pushing the boundaries and people aren't really being edgy or innovative, but how does that, impact where we are now in terms of having major issues like climate change, social upheaval, uh, growing inequality, big issues that are inevitably entering into our personal lives and our working lives. But if, if leaders continue to be comfortable and create those cultures of low challenge, because it's just easier what's the inevitable conflict that will eventually hit because there's such a clash with what's going on in the outside world and what what actually is needed by the organizations that they're running?
1: I think philosophically, we we could define leadership as a force for change and progress, especially if you're talking about good leadership. So I would say that most of the people, including executives, who are in charge of the most influential and impactful organizations are actually not exercising leadership or good leadership mm-hmm. why because they're optimizing for the short term effectiveness or efficiencies of their business which actually sees the things that you just mentioned you know doing something for diversity inclusion climate um mm-hmm. you know uh, social corporate responsibility as a nuisance as compliance And as something that they don't need to do in a kind of free market meritocratic, you know, sense or, you know, kind of traditional capitalist society until they actually feel pressures from society and they see that there are risks or dangers if they don't pretend to care about those things, you know, Mm. and then there is a tension. So, you know, the definition of... Leadership and good leadership is what breaks this vicious cycle. And it's someone who is in a position of power and influence, and they don't need to do something for racial minorities, for women, for underprivileged groups, or for the environment. They don't need to do it, but they do, because they want to drive positive change in the world. And they're actually willing to make uncomfortable decisions and put their own career and personal capital at stake, you know, and sacrifices. So it's the opposite of what we would call virtue signaling, like all of the executives that go to Davos say, black lives matter, enough is enough. So, you know, it becomes meaningless. I mean, I'm sure they believe it, but if all it takes is to do a letter or sign and there is no cost and and then there are no actions to back that up, it's meaningless. What people need and what societies and, you know, civilization is starved of is moral leaders. We have lost the sense of the importance of morality in leadership because you can be amoral today and highly successful as a leader.
0: Is there a disincentive, enough of a disincentive or enough of a positive incentive to lead with genuine virtue rather than virtue signaling, let's just call it virtue and to hit, to lean into the discomfort? Or does it still have to be sort of a personally driven thing? It comes from personal values rather than the fact that it's needed or business models are changing.
1: It's a little bit like recycling. What is the benefit? I mean, it's a virtuous act and it's immoral not to do so, but where are the benefits? They're not around the corner. If no one is watching, it's probably more beneficial to throw your banana skin there than to look for a bin and do it, right? So uh, evolutionary psychologists call them free riders because they're benefiting from everyone else doing the right thing. And therefore, the cost to the group of me not Mm. recycling is lower if everyone else recycles, right? But then on the other hand, the evolutionary psychologists also call them rational agents, a rational agent is the opposite of someone who's doing something virtuous that is good for others but requires a personal sacrifice. I don't think that that the the incentives are anti-virtuous behaviors and that and that leaders are incentivized or like corporate you know managers are incentivized to be selfish, greedy, and corrupt, like in Wall Street, Gordon, Gecko in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is true because I think societies do evolve and mature morally, and we have better standards, you know, today, and, you know, capitalism is maturing and advancing. But it is also true that the real incentives to be good are not strong enough. And if you need an ROI, an incentive or pressure, then by definition, it's not that ethical to begin with.
0: Who is doing a good job, do you think, of Leaning into discomfort, of having uncomfortable conversations, of challenging the way we work and the cultures in which we work that have treated us like resources rather than humans in particular.
1: Rather than picking some names, I do want to focus on the concept that I think is really important, which Mm. is this notion of vulnerable leadership, you know? And by vulnerability, we mean being aware of your limitations, knowing what you don't know, being open about your doubts and limitations and flaws and your knowledge gaps to others and uh, you know not seeing that as an inherent weakness and understanding that if you're all the time trying to impress others and in performance mode and trying to seem tough and and your goal is to seem as competent as you can and you're ultimately relying on deception and impression management to do that, you're you're going to become a liability for your team, your group, and your organization. So this idea that, especially during the pandemic, we have seen that the leaders and heads of states that have managed to handle the pandemic slightly better or significantly better have shown these characteristics. And yes, the famous case studies happen to be female, you know, but there is no yeah. no coincidence there because this, this is a more feminine style of leadership. Um, I think it is going to do something um, to uh, debunk or replace this very outdated, archetypical um, stereotype of a leader as a tough macho, you know, with bravado, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's just before the pandemic when I was talking about Uh, my book to uh, BBC journalists so you know it wasn't Fox News it was the BBC Um, she asked me the question when I was kind of going on and on about you know our inability to distinguish between confidence and competence and how confidence is overrated and it's only useful if you want to Fake competence to others, but otherwise, you know, the best level of confidence is that which tells you what you don't know and enables mm. you to close the gaps. You know, between where you are and where we. And at some point, she said, "Yeah, okay, fine, I get it." But who wants to follow a leader who says, "I don't know"? That was her question. <laughs> and I said, and I, my answer was, "A rational person, maybe." You know, because if your criteria for Uh, seeing someone as leader-like or trusting a leader is how much they pretend to know or the fact that they're able to fake certainty and knowledge. It's a very sad state of affairs, which, by the way, raises a very interesting question, which is we talk a lot about leaders, but what about followers? You know, how Mm -hmm. mature are the followers? It is said that at least in democracies, every society has the leader they deserve. More or less, it reflects at least the choices and the values of people um, so if that is the case, what can we, what can we say? What's our diagnostic of the maturity and the psychological kind of needs and preferences of followers, you know, who put these people mm. in charge and in corporations it's never employees who choose their bosses and their managers, but in politics and democracies, that is the case.
0: Oh, that's a really good point, And an uncomfortable one, because anytime we're criticizing leaders from our own cultures, because we both belong to a few by now. I've had the great distinction of having a British and American passport the past few years yes. so I've got Trump and Johnson. It's a really good point about about getting what we deserve. I really want to talk a bit about your book actually because yes. it's obviously the title is beautifully provocative.
1: Yeah, you know and this and so yeah so the title is why do so many incompetent men become leaders? and how to fix it you know i was forced to provide a final chapter with a solution which you know as a, as an academic it's terribly <laughs> painful i i much prefer to point out what's wrong and uh, you know ask questions than provide practical answers but yes yeah, so it is a provocative title although i say you know it's not it wasn't titled why do too many incompetent men become leaders which would be really the more provocative option and actually you know the uncomfortable title there's an interesting backstory to that before I answer the question, which is that the title is the same title that the original article in Harvard business review had in 2013 or so it was just after Sheryl Sandberg published her famous, you know, book lean in. And this Mm -hmm. was kind of like an, an antidote to that. Like the main point was, you know, instead of pointing the finger at women for in effect, not, uh, behaving like arrogant, <laughs> overconfident, incom- incompetent men. How yeah, I hated we, that book. <laughs> how about we stop falling for people who lean in when they don't have the talents to back it up? You know, why don't we why don't we point the finger at ourselves? And so the so the article you know did very well. It every time there was an election in the world and someone with similar characteristics. One, it went back to number one, you know, online, et cetera. And so for six or seven years, I was literally begging HBR to publish a book on it. Why don't we turn it into a book? And they kept on saying, oh, no, we can't, you know, we can't. 70% of our readers are male executives, so we can't insult them. And I kept on saying, don't worry, because they won't realize it's about themselves. You know, that would require self-awareness. And Uh-oh. one of the critical characteristics of incompetence is the inability to understand that you are incompetent yourself. So, you know, eventually, because of everything that was happening, I said, okay, let's turn it into a book. We turn it into a book. And so the short answer to the question is, we really prefer male incompetence to female competence. We put men in charge who display certain characteristics like overconfidence, charisma, and narcissism, and lack of self-control and um you know integrity that are simultaneously responsible for their downfall you know so you could argue in a cynical and obviously sarcastic way poor men we keep on putting them in these positions when they don't have the talents to get there but that's not all men it's the <laughs> men we choose we particularly choose people who are you know old style and no substance and as a consequence you know the the, the other side of the coin is that we overlook ignore or dismiss not just women but also men who actually have the qualities we need uh, in leaders um you know competence rather than confidence humility rather than um charisma and integrity rather than narcissism you know wow. and i think that that has to be the biggest lesson of the pandemic you know surprise surprise people are generally better off when their leaders are smart Kind and honest. Who would have thought? You know, who
0: would have thought? <laughs> oh, it took twenty twenty to get us to realize exactly, that.
1: Exactly, exactly. That's the lesson. But you know, I think um, when th- there is a there is a vicious cycle here as well because when things are going well, and and you know uh, poverty is going down, you're becoming wealthier. You live in a first. You have first world problems, right? So oh, yeah. when that happens, it's almost like you don't want a leader that is competent and series like Angela Merkel, because it's too boring. You want people like Boris or Trump, come and entertain me, you know, as if Netflix and Amazon are not creating enough good content, you want to be entertained, you know? And so if you want to be entertained, go to the circus to see the clowns. Don't elect people with clown-like features for government.
0: So you think that it is ultimately privilege that allows people to vote for people who are, they don't have to really worry too much about their leaders. They get to be like, I like this guy's personality. So it comes from privilege, you're saying, sort of that like first world problems, I'll just vote for this clown because it doesn't really matter.
1: I think, you know, I I think it is hard and maybe uncomfortable to understand that people generally... Don't vote against their self-interest. A lot of the people who voted for Brexit haven't benefited from it in objective economic terms, and they won't probably the opposite. And you could argue, I think, quite compellingly that a lot of the people who voted for Trump are not better off four years later. And you know, he didn't deliver on the on the economic vision or promise, right? So you said, okay, so look, and why then do you do it again? And I don't think because the answer is that they're stupid, deceived, or misinformed. Mm-hmm. I think that identity trumps, to use the you know pun intended. Identity yeah. trumps uh, the more um, utilitarian or functional means. If you see what I mean. So it's a little bit like we are a couple and we argue: uh, should we go to this restaurant or that one? And you won, so we go there. I love the meal, but I don't want you to be right. So I said, this was horrible or, you know, this is this is what happens in a way. So people don't want to come up as stupid and they don't want to change their values. And so to go back to this specific example, what's interesting is because we talk a lot about how Brexiteers or Trump voters enjoy having someone who insults the people they consider the elites and, you know, that gives them a satisfaction. So fair enough. But on the other end, it's also quite interesting that rich, educated, and privileged people want to vote for someone who taxes them more, for example, and uh, who in many ways also makes them worse off individually. But I think they need some moral validation. And moral validation works on both ends, because it's just something that is congruent with your values. Ultimately, Voters are not as irrational as we think. And I do feel that, you know, because right now we clearly are in very polarized and divided, heated political times, right? Still quite civilized because people mostly disagree on Twitter or social media, and you know, and that and that's about it. So but I, I do think that it is possible to bridge the divide or unite if you make the time to actually speak to individuals and understand their position and no, because ultimately we don't have that much, we're not different species, you know, we're mm-hmm. different entities. And I remember in the early days of uh, the campaign uh, after, I think I was in Milwaukee and there was a Trump rally and there were a lot of people there. And then the hotel where I was staying in the bar, there were half of the people with, you know, Make America Great Huts and some others with the, with the opposite, you know, anti-Trump uh-huh. banners. And they were having a beer, laughing at each other and having a conversation. And I thought, mm-hmm. wow, you know, this isn't this a beautiful image.
0: Yeah, that's the stuff you don't see on the news, and it's and you don't see that. You don't see yeah. it
1: exactly. It yeah. and it's probably not the norm, but I think, you know, and you know, like like you won't stop being friends with the people that tell you. They voted different than you have, etc. And, you know, because if you do, then you're incredibly narrow-minded. You know, it says more yeah. about you than anything else. Um, we can disagree about certain things and probably we'll agree about many others.
0: Yeah, we're far less different than we actually think we are and than the media would have us think we are because it's not as dramatic, is it? I'd like to pull back to sort of the world of work and how you see 2020 in particular yeah. having changed how we work and what we expect from work and what we're going to continue expecting from work when maybe we go back to the office or things get a bit more like they used to be. I won't dare use the word normal. So, yeah, what do you think 2020 has done to our expectations of work and work cultures maybe?
1: So I think first of all, you know, it will have um, made us realize of what the true priorities are in life. So I think there is no return to normalcy as we knew it you know pre march or february i think for a few years it's interesting to see now how the great news on the vaccine are almost backfiring because people are being more careless because of it and it's going to be some time until especially they get it and even mm-hmm. if young people are healthy enough to get infected you know they might make older people sick so you know that's a big problem yeah and i do think that There is an upside, you know, which is that a lot of things that uh, were already not necessary will probably go away or be de-emphasized, you know, like you didn't need a pandemic to realize that a lot of the work can be done from everywhere. If, of Mm. course, you're in the privileged category of knowledge workers and, you know, your, your job hasn't disappeared or your industry hasn't disappeared. It's also true that we didn't need to travel so much uh to be in places you know so i think yeah. we're gonna a lot of us probably now even like for me the big silver lining has been not traveling because i was traveling too much i think we will value traveling more and we will value in-person contact much more than before you know yeah. mostly i think humanity gets uh b plus or an a minus pass because it required remarkable adaptability and resilience to go through this. And if it hadn't been for our ingenuity and the technologies we created, we would have been in a lot of trouble. So, you know, complaining now about Zoom fatigue is the new first World problem. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. if, if you didn't have that, I mean, we it would have been much more lonely and isolating.
0: What has yeah. changed about people's expectations of their working culture and their leaders at work in particular, do you
1: think? We used to work from home, now we're living at work. It feels that way, you know. And I think hmm. um, one of the most interesting psychological questions, and we don't have the answer yet, is how company or organizational cultures will continue to evolve or have evolved or not when there is no office, you know, and even politics. Hmm. What happens to office politics when there isn't an office? Of course, it doesn't disappear. And culture is not about, it's not in the building, is the relationships within people. So I do think like much like people with better technology have benefited more or at least declined less or suffered less, companies with a good culture have uh, risen to the challenge more. And they have probably through their leaders managed to display more empathy, more kindness, look after, you know, in the beginning, in the early stages of the pandemic, one of the memes that was circulated was someone going to a cartoon, cartoon, someone goes to a job interview and when they ask the candidate, do you have any question for us? The question was like, yeah, can you tell me what you did for your employees during the pandemic? That was a joke in the beginning, but now it's such a real HR question because if you couldn't adapt, if you couldn't manage everything from having the right technology in place to actually understanding how to manage what people contribute, not micromanage them and, and move beyond a culture of presentism where, mm-hmm. you know, people are rewarded for being in the right place at the right time, drinking with the right person and saying the right thing to the right person. You have to move beyond that. And we didn't need a pandemic to realize that. I think the cultures that already had some of these uh, good management practices in place are probably fast tracking and, you know, they're, they're emerging stronger. And the ones that don't, hopefully some will have been forced to adopt them, mm. uh, even like things like dress code and formalities and things that uh, were not necessary, that were counterproductive, even financially and performance wise for the company. I think we have a good excuse now. A lot of the HR leaders that I speak to, they're quite happy because they're now getting the attention that they didn't have before. That ah, flexibility mm-hmm. is good, virtual is good, informality is good. And empathy matters, and well-being matters. So yeah, who would have thought?
0: Huh. So it's almost the other way around. It's the companies that have already had a good culture that people could expect good things from are the ones who have probably done best by their employees.
1: If you were a good leader and a good business, you're probably now already adapted, and now you're thinking of what, how can I capitalize and leverage this so that crisis really equals opportunity? And if you were bad, you're probably struggling. Although some may now find, you know, the excuses or the contextual um, requirements to actually change. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need for extreme external pressure to incentivize you, including fear, to make a change.
0: Okay, so crisis is the great divider of great culture and not great culture and
1: the pressure. Crisis are amplifiers. So they make, you know, a crisis makes good leaders stand out and be better. Angela Merkel, Jacinta, Justin Trudeau, and it makes bad leaders exposed and worse. And I don't need to mention example because everyone has their own <laughs> kind of favorite. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. exactly.
0: Exactly. No, that's that's really useful insight. It's a great soundbite as well because it is a great amplifier. And so many of the guests on this podcast who things that I talk about in my solo episodes are about the shadow stuff. It comes out in the wash faster in a crisis, faster. doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly.
0: What would you like to see people be uncomfortable about in order to make the world a bit of a better place, whether it's the world of work or leadership or in general?
1: It's a great question. And uh, because you told me it was coming, I sort of, I've been ruminating about it for a long time and I kind of changed the answer, my mental answer about 55 times, right? But I do have a winner or at least something that I think is my choice, which is I would like for people to be uncomfortable or more uncomfortable with their own biases, which are mostly their beliefs and their convictions. And there's a great line in one of Voltaire's books, I can't remember if it's Zadig or Candide, something on the lines of, doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is absurd. Doubt is uncomfortable, and self-doubt is the most uncomfortable of all doubts. But it's so important. And if we don't have that, you can't do empathy, you can't do humility, and you can't become a better person. So I think fundamentally, society needs for people, for humans, to become a less biased version of themselves. And that's something that only you can work on for yourself. Be more uncomfortable with your biases or our biases, because we love them so much.
0: I cannot agree with you more. We all have biases. And to not know that is... Really lacking in self-awareness. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for dancing with me on the time zones between Barcelona and New York. I very much appreciate your words and I'm sure my guests will as well. So thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And head over to the Discomfort Practice Patreon page. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can become a contributor and help us to produce this podcast and reach new people with the idea that discomfort is just the edge of change, the edge of our superpowers, and the edge of changing the world for the better. Thanks to my wonderful team who helped me produce this podcast, to Thomas Scheffer for the original music, Katrina Affleck for the original artwork, and to my co-producer Spencer Rausch. Let's all stay uncomfortable.